You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. Welcome to Worldview, perspectives on foreign affairs from the Irish Times network of foreign correspondents. I'm Patrick Smith. The execution on Saturday by the Saudis of Shia cleric and dissident leader Sheikh Nimr al-Nimr with 46 others has poured petrol on the bitter divisions between Saudi Arabia and Iran and brought Sunni-Shia tensions in the whole region to new levels. Several Gulf monarchies have now joined the Saudis in breaking off relations with Iran as the rhetoric escalates. Was that the Saudi intention, and is there any way this crisis can be de-escalated? Michael Jansen, our Middle East analyst, joins me from Nicosia to discuss the issue. Meanwhile, in the Far East, the Christmas season saw a surprise rapprochement between Japan and South Korea over an issue that has caused strong resentment for many years, the failure by Japan to acknowledge the brutal role of its armies during the Second World War. Now, conservative nationalist Japanese leader Shinzo Abe has apologised for the use by the army of Korean comfort women, sex slaves in military brothels, in a gesture that has been long awaited in Seoul. David McNeil in Tokyo will join me to discuss the implications. But first to the Iran-Saudi row, the opening shots in what promises to be another grim year in the region. Michael Jansen, who was Sheikh al-Nimri, and was he, as the Saudis claim, a terrorist? What was the nature of his trial? Well, first of all, uh, it depends on who you speak to um, about who he was and what what he did. Most scholars agree that he was a rather difficult person in terms of uh, rhetoric. I mean, he used uh, high-flown rhetoric to criticize the Saudi monarchy, and in particular, he uh, celebrated the death of one of the Saudi princes and upset the. Saudi monarchy about that, the interior minister who scorched any kind of uh, dissidents in the eastern province where the Saudi Shias are concentrated. Hardly what we would call a capital offence. No, not quite a capital offence. The thing is that the present interior minister is the son of the interior minister that he celebrated uh, the demise of. So that may have something to do with it. Uh, Nimr al-Nimr was a, a Shia human rights uh, advocate. He called for Shias to be given equal rights with Sunnis, which they are not. Um, and he also was very critical of the monarchy because it deprived Shias of their rights. And also, of course, the Wahhabi version of uh, Islam, which is practiced in Saudi Arabia, considers Shias to be um, heretics. So there is all that background to it. He was not a, a violent person. He did not uh, sow the seeds of attacks on Saudi troops or on Saudi police. He um, was basically, as I said, a human rights activist. And what was the nature of his trial? The trial was behind closed doors, as is the case in most uh, most of these uh, trials. No one knows much about the trial. He was convinced he was convicted of having differences with the monarchy and um, insulting the monarchy and sedition. But 
anything that has to do with uh, not going along with what the monarchy wants is considered sedition in Saudi Arabia anyway. So that's and, and sedition is specifically a capital offence too. Well, it doesn't have to be. And he was convicted in 2014, and then they, the, the former king, King Abdullah, who was more mild in his uh, treatment of people than the present king, King Salman, uh, the former king did not carry out the sentence. And it was only carried out at the end of this year, um, along with all these other people. There were... 47 killed on the 2nd of January. Out of the 47, 43 were accused and sentenced for being al-Qaeda um, elements. And four were sentenced and executed for Shia activism. And Nimr, Nimr was one of them. Um, some people say that the Saudis had to kill a few Shias to balance the um, al-Qaeda types because... Al-Qaeda actually embodies the doctrine of the Saudi state. Al-Qaeda is a, is a Sunni-based organization. Yes, Al-Qaeda is a Sunni militant movement. But Al-Qaeda calls for the overthrow of the monarchy. Mm. And uh, so, of course, they had to execute the Al-Qaeda people. And what, what can we say about the Saudi purpose in, the, in all of this? In part, distraction perhaps from economic problems? A hundred billion well, deficit in its national budget, and to silence yeah. dissenters, but also perhaps an attempt to warn Iran that its new respectability doesn't really mean a jot as far as it's concerned. Well, um, Saudi Arabia is in serious economic difficulties due to the low price of oil, partially due to the fact that Saudi Arabia is flooding the market with oil uh, in order to keep the prices down, in order to punish Iran, and also to punish Ru Russia. Uh, which are both large oil uh, suppliers to the international market. But the thing is, Saudi Arabia has now got a budget deficit of uh, $98 billion. And it has had to s cut back on subsidies, particularly on petrol and other things. And it is now squeezing the administration to cut down on expenses, although the princes uh, carry on with their lavish ways. Um, but the, 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 the main reason for conducting these executions, I think, was domestic. Uh, but they also expected the Iranians to get very excited about it, because Nimr al-Nimr had been made a figure uh, who, who, uh, on the Shia scene, who um, the Saudis... Uh, uh, wanted to uh, remove from the scene. And um, the thing is, his nephew is also in prison, a young man, and his nephew is uh, threatened with execution as well, and also crucifixion, um, for taking part in some demonstrations against the government. In, in playing, though, this sectarian card and whipping up anti-Islamic and anti-Shia feelings, are, this, are the Saudi regime in danger of unleashing something that they won't be able to control? Well, I think they have done this. Um, and they, they have been doing it, stoking the, the Shia-Sunni uh, rift uh, tensions since uh, the Syrian war began. And they have uh, increased this 
because of the Yemen war, where they insist that the Iranians are supplying the Yemenis with arms, which is almost certainly not true, because the Yemenis have got most of their arms from the army arsenals, which they have captured. Um, and the, the problem is the Saudis portray everything in this Shia-Sunni uh, terms because they are afraid of Iran, um, a country of 77 million, uh, confronting Saudi Arabia where there is a population of 27 million. And out of the 27 million, 20 million are Saudis. And the Iranian army is twice the size of the Saudi army. And the Iranian army also has got a certain amount of uh, experience behind it and also a fairly large arsenal, although not as large an arsenal as the Saudis have but, got. But do you believe that there's a real danger of, of a direct confrontation between Iran and Syria? I don't Iran think so. I mean, I mean I think it's all been conducted in proxy, in terms of proxy wars up till now, hasn't it? Yes, it has been conducted in the proxy wars till now, and the Syrian people and the Yemeni people are suffering from these proxy wars. And uh, it is a very dangerous situation because in the end you're going to have two impoverished countries and also violence um, spilling over into the neighboring countries as it already has from Syria into Iraq. And um, one of the, the results of this uh, confrontation between Iran and Syria now is that uh, uh, between Iran and Saudi Arabia, sorry, um, is that uh, Baghdad, which had been trying to uh, reconcile with Saudi Arabia, has taken the side of Iran in this dispute, and the Saudis had just opened their embassy again in, in Baghdad. Um, having uh, closed it in, the two th in, in 1990 after Iraq invaded Kuwait. So that is on hold. That reconciliation is on hold. And that would have been a very good thing for Iraq because the government in Iraq needs Sunni tribesmen to help them fight Islamic State. And if they don't have the, the help of the Sunnis, uh, they will be considered to be a Shia force fighting against Sunnis, and this will, of course, raise the stakes on the Shia-Sunni um, ten tension level. Now, there is, a, there is also a religious dimension to this, and particularly in terms of the leadership of the Muslim world, and, and in terms of Saudi uh, Arabia's uh, monopolization of, of the Hajj, and the accident in the Hajj uh, last summer in which hundreds of people died in the dispute, this has become a very real source of bitterness between the two uh, countries, isn't it? Yes, well, I mean, because Saudi Arabia is, uh, has control of the two major religious sites in Islam, Mecca and Medina, and the king's real title is guardian of the two holy sites, um, Saudi Arabia considers itself the leading Muslim power, and it is considered in a way by many Sunni Muslim states. Iran doesn't try to pretend that it is the leading Muslim power because the number of Shia amongst the Muslim communities across the world is about 15%. And so Iran knows it cannot be the leading Muslim power. Um, and it, during that Hajj accident, it, the latest 
estimates are that there were at least 2,200 people killed, and a large number of them were Iranians. Uh, so the Iranians are particularly incensed over this, and they have threatened to ask for the creation of a commission to take over the Hajj from the Saudis. Now, of course, the Saudis would never accept this, but um, it is part of the game that they are playing. Thank you, Michael. You're listening to the Irish Times. And now to Japan and David McNeil. Japan's Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, renowned for his conservative nationalism, has caused a bit of surprise on this, the 70th anniversary of the end of World War II. What did he say to Korea's President Park Geun-hye about the tens of thousands of comfort women and indeed Japan's 35 years of colonial rule on the Korean Peninsula? Well, the reason J- Japan has apologized to Chris before for um, for its rule in Korea, and and it has actually apologized before for the comfort women issue. The reason why this is a landmark agreement or being seen as a landmark agreement is, first of all, um, it comes from uh, a, a, a prime minister, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, who's considered a nationalist, and it was um, quite unexpected that he apologized. Uh, so basically, what the deal entails is that Japan gives uh, about seven million euro to the Korean government, which runs a fund, which will use that money to run a fund for the surviving women. There's about 45 of these comfort women left, uh, and then uh, Abe said he apologised and he um, he expressed what he called sincere apologies and remorse to all the women who underwent immeasurable and painful experiences, um, and uh, it conceded. Uh, that its military author- that the military authorities during the war had played a role in uh, the sexual enslavement of women. Um, so all of that was considered uh, important in the context of the times, uh, and it was hoped that that would be enough to sort of um, to mend what were dangerously frayed relations between two countries which are very close culturally, economically, uh, and of course geographically, and which should be allies and which are allies of the Americans, of course. So, so um, that was the hope. That's why that the tag landmark was tagged to it. Now, now, seven million euros is not exactly uh, a huge amount of money to deal with uh, forty-six surviving victims, and the form of the payment is is also interesting. It's 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 tagged a humanitarian agreement rather than uh, war reparation. And are those are those two issues causing problems? Yes. Yeah, so you know, once we've got the sort of the the, the basics out of the way, then you you come back to the details, and as you've said, the details are quite troubling. So. Uh, one is that the government, uh, again, the government of Japan, again, sort of has, first of all, shied away from paying direct compensation. Uh, uh, and that's of a piece with the sort of original. So to go back a little bit, in 1993, there was an acknowledgement from the then government that uh, the, that the wartime administration had been involved in coercing these women, and a fund was set up, a private fund was set up, but it, it was never a direct government compensation, and there was not uh, an apology from the prime minister. And that those two issues, particularly the fact that it wasn't direct government compensation, it was a private fund, meant that it was shunned by most of the Korean women because they felt that the government of Japan was um, w- was trying to whittle its way out of. Uh, direct responsibility. And again, the problem here is, as you say, it's not direct compensation. And then if you look very carefully at the apology, uh, there's quite a lot of fine-tuning 
which people have latched on to. Uh, one, of, one of which is that Mr. Abe himself has apologized in a personal capacity, using most of the words that he used before, but not as prime minister. And uh, the other issue is that um, Japan, in its wording, has sort of said things like the government of Japan is painfully aware of responsibilities from this perspective, but it didn't say its responsibilities. And these may all seem like very minor issues, but in the context of this argument, which has gone on for years, which is very bitter, you know, the Koreans have sort of said, well, you know, here we are again, sort of uh, uh, the government of Japan is is, uh, fine-tuning to such an extent that we don't really believe that they're sincere. But we've seen uh, the final statement referring to the issue being finally and irreversibly resolved and Abe talking about how Japan and South Korea are entering a new era. Uh, is that, are those hyperbole? Um, is, is that right? Well, I think that's what he would like to happen. And, you know, he wants to really put a lid on this. Uh, and it's very clear from all the people we talk to that the Americans are also very unhappy that this argument drags on and they want uh, this to be buried. And uh, one of the reasons why they have sort of heaped praise on the agreement, the Americans, is is because they're hoping to sort of pressure both sides uh, to to keep into it. Um, But there's lots of problems. One is the wording. Uh, The other is, as you've uh, said in your introduction, there is opposition on both sides. The Japanese opposition comes from the nationalist right. You know, there was a crowd of them protesting outside the Prime Minister's office last week, calling for him to commit harikiri, for him to commit suicide because he'd betrayed the honour of Japanese soldiers. That can be handled. You know, Abe is powerful enough uh, and and secure enough. And there's uh, an element that isn't there, that that because he comes, if you like, from that constituency, it was a deal that he could do that a a, a liberal could could never have done. Exactly. I mean, that's the Nixon, you know, argument that that he was the only one that could have done this. If it had been a liberal government, uh, he, he would not have survived. So, yes, he can carry this. The bigger problem, I think, comes from the Korean side. Uh, because uh, a lot of people now are saying that the Korean government has sold out these women. And uh, one of the key issues is that it appears as though the women themselves were not consulted. And there's a very powerful uh, video which is circulating, which shows one of the women uh, at the um, uh, the house where they live, just about two hours outside Seoul, uh, sort of viciously berating the, the South Korean foreign minister for betraying them and for... Um, um, uh, not heeding their concerns and for giving up uh, any, of course, part of the agreement is that Korea will not, no longer uh, take this argument to the international court. So giving up Korea's chance really to fight for uh, justice and and, uh, that really is a problem in Korea. And of course, the other issue which we should mention is the statue. There is a statue to the to the Korean women which was erected in Seoul right in front of the uh, Japanese embassy. Uh, the Japanese embassy views that as an embarrassment. They badly want it gone. They push really hard uh, with the Koreans for it to be removed. The Korean government said that it couldn't, and in the end, as a fudge, uh, basically where the Koreans say, well, we'll try to remove it. And I, my personal opinion, the, appearance, the, the opinion of a lot of people who look at this is that they really uh, don't have a hope of removing that statue. So that sort of leaves that big sore uh, sticking, uh, sticking there uh, between the two sides. 
Now, the deal is particularly pivotal to the Korean-US-Japan alliance, and regionally uh, it is it is probably much more welcome than it is in either of the two countries, and particularly by the US. There have been strains between Tokyo and Seoul uh, that have prevented them from signing agreements on sharing sensitive military information. Is that all past now? Is that all going to be resolved? I mean, your guess is as good as mine. My my sense is that, no, that the problems that have existed between the two sides, which are rooted in, first of all, history, in the perception in Korea that Japan has not done enough to atone for its colonialization of Korea and for the war, uh, by, by nationalism on both sides, and by the sense in Japan that the Koreans need to get over the past. You know, that kind of something... Um, really quite extraordinary needs to be done to get over that. And it's not clear to me, at least, that this uh, constitutes, you know, the sort of final uh, gesture from the Japanese side that might uh, end all of this. Uh, my sense and the sense of people, a lot of people who are looking at this, is that uh, this this will probably drag on. And, of course, the, there are the similar legacy issues uh, in terms of Japan's relationship with uh, China and, and, indeed, Taiwan, uh, about the behaviour of Japanese troops uh, in 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 those countries during during the war, the the extraordinarily vicious uh, massacre of Nanjing is something that hangs particularly, I think, over Japanese Chinese relations. Is there is there any indication that Abe, having begun the move in Korea, is likely to try and repair those those uh, bridges with China? Well, there is, of course, one of the things he said in his New Year policy speech is that he uh, wants to set up a, um, uh, a tripartite summit with uh, Korea and China. And I think he has made real efforts in the last couple of months to try and repair ties with China. But I, but I also think that working against that uh, is the fact that Abe comes from a political tradition which... Um, very reluctantly acknowledges what happened during the war, and uh, if we were to take the most uncharitable view, uh, it actually uh, wants to hide and cover up uh, uh, and whitewash what happened in the war, and that just does not play down well in China at all, particularly around issues like the Nanking Massacre. And the Chinese, of course, uh, have their own um, drums to rattle. You know, they uh, uh, make great play out of bashing Japan on the international stage. So um, my sense, again, is that these problems with China will rumble on. And um, one of the things that, um, one of the analysis that has come out of, you know, this agreement with Korea is that um, China actually has won out in some ways because it's vindicated in its opposition uh, to the insertion of human rights, women rights, and the rule of law into any international agreement. That's from Mindy Kotler, one of the um, people I consulted when I was writing my article for the Irish Times. And I think that um, it also confirms or will confirm the view for China that uh, it's the U.S. America which is pulling the strings here. It's the Amer Americans who are leaning on China and Korea uh, to sort of patch things up uh, it, with a deal that has too many holes really to work. Uh, and, um, you know, that plays well in China, but it uh, probably isn't very good for Korea and Japan. Meanwhile, in, in Japan, Abe is still, or his, his ministry is still publishing uh, um, school books that uh, omit whole chunks of Japanese history. And um, his wife, I gather, recently visited the war shrine um, that is so controversial. Well, this was a big surprise. You know, I mean, this isn't the first time that uh, Shinzo Abe's wife 
has gone to uh, uh, Yasukuni Shrine, but I was surprised because she was considered the sort of liberal half of the marriage, if you like. She was sort of pro-gay rights and uh, anti-nuclear uh, power, and had often come out, uh, you know, sort of vaguely in opposition to some of her government policies. So it was curious that she went to Yasukuni Shrine on exactly the same day as this deal with the Koreans was announced, um, and uh, many people believed that that was some kind of quid pro quo. And on textbooks, I mean, you're absolutely right. You know, and this is this is really, I suppose, what gets the goats of of the Koreans and the Chinese is that even as Abe makes these gestures, and and they were brave political gestures given his political constituency, they know the Koreans and Chinese know that at the same time as he's doing that, Abe's government is trying to whittle down references to the war. It's trying to inject patriotism into the education system. It's trying to, uh, uh, in any way it can, really, sort of just um, glide over that really nasty history uh, before 1945 when Japan ran rampage throughout most of East Asia. And um, uh, that's the sort of thing, really, that plays against Abe when he tries to pull these agreements together. Thank you very much, David. That's all from Worldview this week. I'm Patrick Smith. Thanks to David McNeil and Michael Jansen and to producer Declan Conlon and Gary White on sound.